Hey guys, <clears throat> welcome to the Bitcoin Fortress podcast, helping you increase your financial freedom. This is episode 45, recorded here on December 18th, 2022. This podcast is for entertainment only and is not investing advice, so please do your own homework. Starting out with the market update, the S&P 500 on Friday ended the week 2.1% lower amid renewed fears of the economy sinking into a recession next year, as major central banks may not ease up on rate hikes just yet. The benchmark index posted losses in three out of five sessions with hopes of a Santa rally this year quickly fading. <clears throat> the major indexes posted a second consecutive week of losses with the Dow down 1.7% and the NASDAQ off 2.7%. The week featured the Federal Reserve, European Central Bank, and Bank of England all turn more hawkish as inflation remains stubbornly high. Of note, San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly said the Fed still has, quote, a long way to go to get inflation down to 2%. Trading was especially volatile on Friday, with $2.6 trillion worth of options expiring as part of Triple Witching Day. Uh, moving on to a look ahead for next week, a relatively quiet week is ahead for investors with the uh, event and schedule conference thin. Earnings from FedEx, Nike, General Mills, and Micron will provide some of the bigger talking points along with a slew of housing data reports, including the December Home Builder Survey, Housing Starts Update, existing home sales release, and new home sales report. B. Riley, financial chief market strategist, thinks the focus on housing could help traders remember that the calculation for CPI is a lagging indicator. He noted the real data next week is likely to show housing is coming down much faster than what shows up in the inflation reports. On the political front, Congress will wrap up negotiations on what is expected to be a $1.7 trillion package to keep the federal government running through September. Okay, moving on to Bitcoin news for this week. Uh, first article here is from Benzinga Crypto. This is uh, published on December 14th, title, Binance's CZ does about turn on crypto self-custody. Quote, 99% of the people will end up losing it. Binance CEO Changpeng Zhao, known popularly as CZ, has warned users that holding cryptocurrency in a cold wallet may be riskier than leaving it on a centralized exchange. Uh, I, by the way, I don't believe that. Uh, what happened? So CZ, during a Wednesday Twitter Spaces discussion, said, for most people, for 99% of the people today, asking them to hold crypto on their own, they will end up losing it. CZ was speaking a few hours after news broke that he had advised his staff to prepare for a bumpy few months, suggesting that the practical realities make self-custody of crypto unrealistic for many users. He pointed out that his company is neutral on users' preference for the mode of holding cryptocurrency. CZ strongly supported the self-custody of assets last month amid the FTX market contagion, calling it a fundamental human right. In a subsequent tweet, he endorsed Trust Wallet, a self-custodial cryptocurrency storage platform Binance acquired in 2018 that allows you to store your crypto yourself, your keys, your coins. However, CZ now appears to agree that a custodial wallet ensures better safety of users' funds. Most people don't think about backing up their security keys until it's too late, CZ said. Without the proper encryption for their backups, they'll end up writing them down on a piece of paper and risk having their funds stolen. Worse still, if a person was to pass away without leaving a way to give access to their next of kin, their digital assets would be forever lost. But with our standard operating procedure, this doesn't have to be a problem, he added. This week, Binance experienced billions of dollars in outflows as investor conference took a beating from the FTX contagion. However, Zhao said the activity was business as usual, emphasizing the company's commitment to providing a secure environment for its clients. 
So, uh, you know, part of this makes you wonder if he's just talking his book because he wants people to keep their money on the exchange. Um, you know, otherwise, why would he change his tune? Um, I do think that in time, as time goes on, I think self-custody is going to become easier and easier for the average person to do. And I do think people are certainly learning more about it now in the wake of FTX. So, um, and, you know, of course, you're going to need to, if you want to sell any of your Bitcoin, you have to put it on exchange anyway. So you're, you're still going to need an exchange account um, uh, eventually <clears throat> to, to, to be able to sell. But um, if you're just buying and holding uh, for long-term savings, uh, if you have a good setup, um, you know, and you have, uh, you know, your, your backup keys, um, stored appropriately and, and, you know, uh, it can be written down on paper, but it needs to be in a secure location that, uh, and then you need to have obviously your, your, you know, for your, uh, retirement planning, you need to sort of leave some instructions, uh, you know, for how to locate the keys and be able to access the coins and that sort of thing. So. Um, it could be done. Uh, people are doing it and, uh, I, I just, I don't know. I just kind of question his motives right now, especially since, uh, you know, people are basically draining, uh, exchange balances at a, at a rate, um, especially for Bitcoin at an unprecedented rate, I think just again, a reaction to, uh, what just transpired with FTX. Uh, this next article here from CoinDesk, pu published on December 16th, uh, I would file this in the category of um, doesn't look like uh, the crypto craziness is going away anytime soon. And this in particular is the NFTs. Uh, this is uh, Donald Trump NFT collection sells out, price surges. According to data from OpenSea, the collection's floor price is about 0.19 ETH or $230, more than double the original mint price. Well, at least they aren't million dollars. Former U.S. President Donald Trump's non-fungible token digital trading card collection sold out early Friday, the day after its initial release. According to data from OpenSea, at time of writing, the collection's trading volume is 900 ETH or about $1.08 million. Its floor price is about 0.19 ETH or about $230, more than double the original price of $99. Some tokens are selling for much higher prices. The one of ones, the rarest of the NFTs, which comprise 2.4% of the 45,000 unit collection, roughly 1,000, are selling for as much as 6 ETH at the time of writing. One of these rare trading cards of the 45th president standing in front of Statue of Liberty holding a torch is currently listed at 20 ETH or about $24,000. According to data from Dune Analytics, nearly 13,000 users minted three and a half tokens upon the release of the collection. Additionally, 115 customers purchased 45 NFTs, which is the minimum number of tokens that guarantees a ticket to a dinner with Trump. 17 people purchased 100 NFTs, which according to the Trump trading card site, was the maximum quantity allowed to mint. However, additional metrics from Dune show that other wallets held far more. Currently, 1,000 NFTs, including many one-of-ones, are held in a Gnosis Safe multi-signature wallet, which appears to be the wallet receiving royalty payments from the secondary sales of the NFTs. Uh, so... Um, interesting news and um i guess nfts just like crypto probably will hang around and uh, you know the the hard part for me with nfts uh even though i find them interesting from the standpoint of a creator uh like an artist you know if, if they create a digital work and then are able to sell it directly to a fan, you know, that obviously cuts out the middleman. And, um, you know, those contracts can be written so that uh, if the person buying that work of art um, subsequently sells it, 
um, you know, there'll be, there can be built in uh, an automatic payment to the artist uh, so that, you know, each time it trades, changes hands, the artist gets a percentage of that sale, which uh, is not possible, um, obviously, in the physical world, right? If the artist sells the painting to a collector, they get a payment, and then that's it. Then when the collector auctions it off to the next person, after the auction house takes their cut, the next person pays, and then the seller gets 100% of the net proceeds, and so on and so forth. So, so I do see, you know, benefits uh, to NFTs, you know, from from that standpoint. Um, the hard part is just trying to figure out because there's so many of them, which ones are actually worth anything and which ones aren't. Um, and obviously, with Trump, he's got a big brand and and a lot of uh, fans so of course you know people are willing to buy that stuff um whether or not it's going to be worth anything in the future will will sort of depend i guess um but uh yeah i mean for me the vast majority of nfts are garbage and um you know it's just it was just kind of a wild speculation uh you know in this bubble that we just experienced but it's just kind of interesting to see it's still there. Uh, moving on to the next one. This is an opinion piece from Coindesk. Uh, this was published uh, today, December 18th. Um, uh, George Kaloudis, a guy I really enjoy um, reading his stuff. Uh, this is Warren's reactionary crypto policy versus Dorsey's decentralized social media gambit. Policy actions that decry decentralization in response to FTX sort of miss the point. <clears throat> and I have a feeling that I'm probably going to agree with most of what he's talking about here. So jumping right in, last week, John J. Ray III, the new CEO of FTX, who is leading the company through bankruptcy proceedings, testified before the House Financial Services Committee about the crypto exchanges collapse. I honestly don't think there was much to report from Ray's testimony beyond A, the guy knows what he's doing, and B, that he believes FTX's downfall was really just old fashioned embezzlement. After Ray's testimony, I think most were excited to tune into former CEO Sam Bankman Fried's scheduled testimony in front of the US House Financial Services Committee, but that testimony was unfortunately canceled on account of the fact that he that SBF was arrested in the Bahamas after U.S. authorities filed criminal charges last Monday. SBF was denied bail and awaits an extradition hearing in 2023, for which he will wait while sitting in a maggot-infested Bahamian prison. Meanwhile, Senator Elizabeth Warren took the opportunity with crypto top of mind to re react with a uh, bipartisan bill co-sponsored by Senator Roger Marshall, Republican from Kansas, called Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act. I'm not going to go over the bill point by point here, but if passed, the bill will require anyone who maintains public blockchain infrastructure to register as a financial institution. This includes software developers or anyone validating transactions on a network. These FIs would be required to do things like collect the personal information of people who use their software and comply with anti-money laundering programs to block funds related to crime. On top of that, it would ban any interaction with privacy tools like Tornado Cash, which is sanctioned by the Treasury Department, and privacy coin protocols, including Monero or Zcash. On its face, the bill doesn't necessarily feel problematic, especially because it was drafted in the wake of the FTX collapse. But here's the thing about the bill, and this is the point. The point being that a lack of corporate controls and opaque systems led to FTX's bankruptcy. Not someone like me relaying Bitcoin transactions with the computer sitting in my living room. The bill misses the point because it goes after something only related to FTX because the word crypto is involved, like how soccer and baseball are related because they're both played with roundish balls. But a rule in soccer that bans sliding into first base would be kind of weird. Non-sporty readers, there's no first base in soccer. Proving this, Senator Warren tweeted, rogue nations, oligarchs, and drug lords are using crypto to launder billions, evade sanctions, and finance terrorism. My bipartisan bill puts common sense rules in place to help close crypto money laundering loopholes and protect our national security. 
If you're paying attention, this has almost nothing to do with FTX. To be clear, I'm not coming to the defense of FTX here, but I am coming to the defense of people like Evan Kaloudis, no relation, although I've donated to his open source project efforts, who will have to implement a sophisticated AML program to the Zeus LN wallet he developed, a piece of software which is free and open source if this bill becomes law. Much emphasis on free here. On top of that, it is very critical to note that SBF was arrested without this bill becoming law because he is charged with doing things like securities fraud and wire fraud and money laundering, which are already illegal. The hoopla around this bill comes from the fact that it is primarily focused on financial surveillance, which we wouldn't have stopped FTX from happening. In fact, the bill would make non-custodial use of crypto harder, which would drive users toward the FTXs of the world, not away from them. In all, the Digital Asset Anti-Laundering Act is at worst a poorly veiled attempt at expanding financial surveillance, and at best, it's just a bill that misses the point due to a lack of institutional crypto knowledge. Elsewhere, tr Twitter co-founder and Block CEO Jack Dorsey donated a touch more than 14 Bitcoin to N and Noster, a decentralized social network. Some Twitter users told him he should look into it, and within 24 hours, Dorsey funded developer Fiat Jaff's Noster efforts. Noster isn't itself a social network. Instead, <clears throat> it's an open protocol with a lean towards censorship resistance. The protocol doesn't use a centralized server, instead relying on user-run clients. With this client, users can send content around by writing a post, signing it with their private key, and relaying it to other servers. This relay network can enable others to build social media platforms using it. I think the donation is quite cool, but probably not for the reasons you think. You probably think it's cool because ever since Twitter was taken private, there's been an overwhelming sense that users are looking for a better experience, and this is a step in the direction of improving that experience. Sure, that's cool, but what's cooler is that the funding of this project happened organically. Noster wasn't the brainchild of some well-known tech billionaire. It's just a piece of open source software that was born because, as Fiat Jaff told me over Telegram, the old internet where freedom was winning is being killed, and a new supposedly free platform won't work in the long run. Whether you agree with Fiat Jaff or not on that point, Dorsey discovered Noster, used it, and thought it was interesting enough to warrant funding. So while it didn't really garner attention until some well-known tech billionaire discovered it, it wasn't the, that billionaire's brainchild, and that's substantially cooler than if it was. Fiat Jaff agrees, adding over Telegram, that money isn't really the most impactful thing, but the fact that Jack used it and talked about it is more important. The parallels to Bitcoin are there. Please do not take this as a suggestion that Noster will be as big, important, or successful as Bitcoin. Noster is an open source, decentralized protocol that people will try to use because they are dissatisfied with current systems. At a minimum, I'm really looking forward to how the decentralized social media story continues to develop more from here. Let's tie the Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act to Dorsey's Noster donation. While not targeted at all, open source developers specifically, <clears throat> if this bill passes, then a meaningful cross-section of open source developers may be tagged as potential criminals. So too will be the people who run and use the open source software they develop. This tagging won't stop everyone from using the open source software, but it would certainly stop most people. This would in turn encourage broader use of large custodial centralized platforms like FTX. And while things like Noster wouldn't be covered in the passing of this bill, the bill still sponsors at least a partial muzzling of open source software, the muzzling of which is a muzzling of free speech. In addition, with the funding of Noster, Dorsey shows that he isn't missing the point. The point is that spectacular failures in centralized systems like FTX beget the need to build robust decentralized systems that protect liberty and freedom and everyday citizens. As corny as that sounds, it's true. The point is that centralization, in this case at least, is the issue. A natural conclusion here is that the bill would not protect us from another FTX or crypto money laundering loopholes. It simply isn't getting at the crux of the issue. I'm in no way suggesting that these senators are proposing this bill in bad faith. I'm only suggesting that the advertised purpose of a bill should be achievable given the laws that would be enforced in the event that the bill passes. So in the same way I look forward to the development of decentralized social networks, I also look forward to the development of laws that make sense 
in the context of what they're governing. And no surprise, I pretty much agree with everything that he says here. Um, I was a little surprised that, um, you know, uh, almost immediately after this FTX thing really broke, uh, all of a sudden they have a bill ready, you know, which just seemed to me like uh, they'd been cooking it for a long time and just looking for the right opportunity to roll it out. Um, you know, whether it passes or not is a whole different story. And with the split Congress, you know, you sort of expect that not a lot's going to really get done. Um, but it is troubling because I do think that, uh, you know, this has freedom of speech implications and um, uh, individual freedom and liberty indica uh, implications as well. Um, you know, uh, uh, and, and of course, we, we all know that Know Your Customer and Anti-Money Laundering or the infamous KYC AML regulations um, haven't really worked. I mean, they really haven't stopped terrorist funding. Um, terrorists still get funded. Drug, drug lords still get their money. Uh, weapons smugglers still get their money. Ironically, they're getting paid in dollars through, you know, uh, bank accounts. So. Uh, all that has really done is put a lot of sensitive information onto these centralized bank platforms. And, and I don't know about you, but I've, I've lost track of the number of data breaches that have occurred over the years. Uh, I, I get them all the time um, from banks, from you know, financial institutions, from you know, websites, whoever. And, um, you know, your information is just out there. And so, you know, these are honeypots for hackers to uh, steal personal information and then, uh, you know, sell it on the dark web or, or, you know, use it to commit fraud or whatever. So um, in my personal opinion, the whole a KYC AML thing is just, uh, has been a failure, you know, in terms of uh, from a law enforcement standpoint. And I think uh, it, it's actually limits our freedom. So um decentralization you know is in social media seems like the right approach given that the um the uh, current um you, you know the, the direction you know twitter headed obviously it seems like it just swinging from one extreme to the other i mean uh, even now there's censorship going on and um, things like that even as they expose censorship that occurred under the prior management so um it just seems like uh, centralized platforms naturally um, evolve towards corruption, I guess, um, for lack of a better word to describe it. Okay, uh, next here is, uh, this is from Bitcoin.com. Uh, this was just published, uh, I guess, today. U.S. Senator, cryptocurrency cannot be stopped. FTX collapse is not an indictment of crypto. U.S. Senator Pat Tomey, who's a Republican from Pennsylvania, explaining explained in his opening statement at the Senate Banking Committee hearing Wednesday that the collapse of crypto exchange FTX is not an indictment against cryptocurrency. There was unauthorized lending of customer assets to an affiliated entity and there were fraudulent promises to investors and customers about FTX's operations. These are outrageous and completely unacceptable, the senator described, emphasizing. Um, this is a direct quote. I want to underscore a bigger issue here. The wrongful behavior that occurred here is not specific to the underlying asset. What appears to have happened here is a complete breakdown in the handling of those assets. In our discussion of FTX today, I hope we're able to separate potentially illegal actions from perfectly lawful and innovative cryptocurrencies, he told the Senate committee. Noting that cryptocurrencies are actually software, uh, Senator Tomey explained, what we should all understand here is one simple thing. The code committed no crime. FTX and cryptocurrencies are not the same thing. FTX was opaque, centralized, and dishonest. Cryptocurrencies are open source, decentralized, and transparent. The senator from Pennsylvania proceeded to address suggestions that crypto should be banned following the FTX meltdown. <clears throat> to those who think that this episode justifies banning crypto, I'd ask you to think about several examples, he began. The 2008 financial crisis involved the misuse of products related to mortgages. Did we decide to ban mortgages? Of course not. 
a commodity brokerage firm run by a former New Jersey Senator John Corzine collapsed after customer funds, including U.S. dollars, were misappropriated to fill a shortfall from the firm's trading losses. Nobody suggested that the problem was the U.S. dollar and that we should ban it. Senator Tommy stressed, with FTX, the problem is not the instruments that were used. The problem was the misuse of customer funds, gross mismanagement, and likely illegal behavior. The lawmaker continued, some of my colleagues have suggested pausing cryptocurrencies before we can address it. This is profoundly misguided, not to mention impossible. Short of enacting draconian authoritarian policies, cryptocurrency cannot be stopped. If we tried, the technology would simply migrate offshore. Are we going to decide to pause our constitution to stop crypto? This is exactly the kind of mindset that has driven this activity to this dark and less regulated parts of the world, he further opined. Moreover, the lawmaker said, <clears throat> others have suggested that we refrain from addressing cryptocurrency at all so as not to legitimize its use. This is not only misguided, it's irresponsible. The senator detailed, individuals can also be tremendously empowered when they use cryptocurrencies. They can protect against inflation when governments irresponsibly manage their own currencies. They can provide useful services without the need for a company or a middleman, and they can let individuals preserve the freedom to transact privately. Tommy also tweeted Wednesday, the collapse of FTX is not an indictment of crypto, it's an indictment of those who misuse customer assets. As I've said for months, Congress needs to give regulatory clarity so business flows to prudent, sensible, well-regulated American crypto exchanges, he added. Uh, so quite an interesting take, and, and again, uh, can't really disagree with him. Um, the problem with FTX is, you know, that was a fraudulent enterprise from day one. And, um, you know, whether they were dealing in stocks or bonds or cash um, or cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's, uh, you know, when you don't keep records, um, accounting records, <laughs> when you, um, you know, take customers money and speculate with it and then uh, use the other part of it to um, influence lawmakers and regulators well that's fraud uh, regardless of what the underlying asset is that you used to commit it so i think he's right on there uh next uh, item here is, uh, this is from Coindesk. This was published uh, December 16th, another opinion piece. Um, the best Bitcoin lightning payment solutions. A look at open source and corporate point of sale systems from BTC Pay to Confirmo, so any merchant can start accepting Bitcoin in 2023. Uh, this was uh, written by Vlad Goryachev. The pace of technological innovation in crypto finance is nothing short of astounding. Bitcoin, the magic internet money of yesterday, is now knocking on the doors of high street shops, bars, and restaurants. The Lightning Network, a web of interconnected nodes managed by crypto enthusiasts, is driving this revolution. Lightning Network transaction throughput and speed are already rivaling those of Visa and MasterCard for a fraction of the cost. More and more retail establishments are thinking to start accepting crypto, but don't know where to start. This guide will present and compare side-by-side -side all the available options for the business owners to make an informed choice. I'll start by describing the solutions in alphabetical order and continue with a summary matrix that could help retailers decide which to integrate. To qualify, each implementation must satisfy two criteria. One, enable businesses to accept Bitcoin payments via Lightning Network. Two, do that face-to-face, i.e. mom-and-pops and box-top stores should be able to generate a lightning invoice QR code a client can scan to pay. Some of the solutions will present an option to automatically convert the proceeds into local currency, others will not. It will be up to the business owner to decide whether to hold Bitcoin or to do the conversions manually. I leave out of the scope other blockchains and stablecoins. In this day and age, they are objectively inferior to Lightning Network as a payment rail. BitPay, a U.S. company that offers a centralized wallet and bookkeeping suite with ability to accept a range of cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, over the Lightning Network. To use it, a Lightning QR code is generated by the BitPay checkout app linked with 
a user's online BitPay account via an API code. Proceeds can be converted into local currency and withdrawn via ACH, SEPA, FPS, etc. Full KYC enrollment is required to start the service. The company charges a flat 1% fee on the proceeds. Funds are at risk until withdrawn because the wallet is centralized. Uh, other notes, only the iPhone version of this app existed at the time of testing. Trustpilot rated it a 1.3. Um, next here is BitRequest, a free open source app for iOS and Android that also accepts a range of cryptocurrencies, including Lightning Bitcoin. Users can also send out remote requests for payment. To use Lightning, BitRequest requires a user to already own a Lightning node. The solution does not have access to private keys, therefore it is non-custodial, requires no trust in any third party. Owning a Lightning node involves setting up and managing Lightning network connections or channels to other Lightning nodes, a task that requires both time and substantial investment. To convert proceeds into local currency, the user would have to open an account on a crypto exchange, KYC route, or use non-KYC peer-to-peer services like BISC network or RoboSats. Breeze is a free and open source app for Android that creates a non-custodial wallet and opens lightning channels to a user's Breeze node automatically or to another chosen node. The first accepted payment and each subsequent payment above 20 euro bear a fee of 0.4% or a minimum of 2,000 sats to cover channel operating opening costs. The channels get reused when the money is paid out. The app does not offer conversion to fiat currencies but can use any of them as a base to calculate the amount of sats for the Lightning invoice. Breeze is currently in beta testing and users must accept a warning that their funds could be lost. For this reason, I could not include it in the summary matrix. However, I do find the solution very innovative. BTC Pay Server. <clears throat> BTC Pay is a storied non-custodial op option that's popular among crypto enthusiasts. The software code is free and open source and can be deployed through a variety of methods, including a cloud or a local server. For example, one can install it with one click into an umbral lightning node running on a Raspberry Pi microcomputer. Such a server would be able to host a number of businesses, nearby shops and restaurants, all connecting to it via local Wi-Fi or cloud DNS. All of them, however, would need to trust the owner of the server. For users who do not want to set up and manage their own lightning node, there are cloud services like Voltage that allow renting for $10 per month. However, in this case, the solution becomes custodial. Confirmo. This option is made by a Slovakian company and offers a similar service to BitPay for a 0.8% fee. The app, which only requires an email to use, allows automatic daily settlement in crypto or fiat to a personal wallet or bank account. Though KYC is required for fiat withdrawals when I tested the app, I found that the BTC euro conversion rate was an average of half a percent higher than prices listed on CoinMarketCap. Further, the app did not show the exchange rate or data source. There's a maximum of 0.03 Bitcoin, 600 euros set for invoices. Crypto withdrawals, including Lightning, incur a 0.5% fee, and fiat withdrawals potentially incur additional bank fees, according to the Confirmo website. Funds are at risk until withdrawn. Trustpilot rating is 3.0. GoCrypto, this subsidiary of the Slovenia-based company Aligma offers a physical POS device for 450 euros plus shipping cost as well as a free web version. Transaction fees vary by country from 1.25 to 5%. Proceeds can be received in over 50 cryptocurrencies with optional conversion to fiat. Payouts are executed four times a month. Online onboarding is not available to test the service. Funds are at risk until withdrawn. Trustpilot rating not available. Lightning Network Point of Sale, a lightweight web app offering a hybrid solution that is open source and free to use. The software is simply a gateway to a crypto exchange, Bitfinex, but is separate from the crypto exchange's BFX Pay platform. It can be run from lnpos.me website or installed on the user's own server. LNPOS works by requesting a Lightning deposit address from the exchange and displaying it on a user's phone or tablet as a QR code. Proceeds are automatically converted to a range of local currencies and stablecoins. Easy registration with email is available for testing. 
KYC verification is necessary to withdraw fiat. Bitfinex does not accept U.S. customers. Trustpilot rating 3.2. <clears throat> LN Bits. This is a Lightning Lego set, or as the developers call it, a free open source Lightning account system with extensions, much like BTC Pay Server. It can be installed on an Umbral node and is activated using a TPOS terminal extension. However, to start accepting Bitcoin payments, users need to also build or purchase a physical DIY POS terminal. This solution involves manual fiat conversions and to remain non-custodial, a Lightning node you control. OpenNode is a registered corporation in Delaware that accepts Lightning payments and offers optional conversion to fiat. Upfront KYC is required. Weekly Bitcoin withdrawals come with a 1% processing fee, while on-demand withdrawals cost 1% extra for on-chain Bitcoin, but are free for Lightning. Bank transfers charge a 0.2% fee in local currencies. Funds are at risk until withdrawn. Trustpilot rating 3.0. The best non-custodial solution for a technically apt Bitcoin investor is BTC Pay Server. For a more cautious user who would like to convert all incoming proceeds into fiat and has no desire to manage a lightning node, the lnpos.me web app is a free alternative outside the U.S. For U.S. customers, OpenNode has better reviews. And then he has a nice summary in here. So again, I'll include links to this as well as all the other things I've read uh, today in the show notes. Um, but uh, really exciting to see all the different applications that are being developed uh, that work on the Lightning Network. Okay, and then uh, last was a really interesting uh, opinion piece that I, I posted uh, or retweeted, I guess, on Twitter um, that was on uh, Bitcoin Magazine. And uh, it was uh, written by a guy named Luke Mikic. Uh, he's a writer, podcast host, and a macro analyst. And, and uh, this was actually published at the end of October. Uh, this is a two-part series. This is the second part in a two-part two series about the dollar milkshake theory, which I've talked about before, and the natural progression of this to the Bitcoin milkshake. So in this piece, we'll explore where Bitcoin fits into a global sovereign debt crisis, which is something, again, that I've talked about a lot <clears throat> on um on this podcast and, and have also written about in my Substack. Uh, so getting into it, most people believe the monetization of Bitcoin will most hurt the United States as it's the country with the current global reserve currency, but I disagree. The monetization of Bitcoin benefits one nation disproportionately more than any other country. Like it, welcome it, or ban it, the U.S. is the country that will benefit most from the monetization of Bitcoin. Bitcoin will help to extend the life of the U.S. dollar longer than many can conceptualize, and this article explains why. If we move forward on the assumption that the dollar milkshake thesis continues to decimate weaker currencies around the world, these countries will have a decision to make when their currency goes through hyperinflation. Some of these countries will be forced to dollarize, much like the more than 65 countries that are either dollarized or have their local currency pegged to the U.S. dollar. Some may choose to adopt a quasi-gold standard like Russia recently has. Some may even choose to adopt the Chinese yuan or the euro as their local medium of exchange and a unit of account. Some regions could copy what the shadow government of Myanmar has done and adopt the tether stablecoin as legal tender. But most importantly, some of these countries will adopt Bitcoin. For the countries that may adopt Bitcoin, it will be too volatile to make economic calculations and use as a unit of account when it's still so early in its adoption curve. <clears throat> Despite what the consensus narrative is surrounding those who say Bitcoin's volatility is decreasing because the institutions have arrived, I strongly believe this is not a take rooted in reality. In a previous article written in late 2021, analyzing Bitcoin's adoption curve, I outlined why I believe the volatility of Bitcoin will continue to increase from here as it travels through 500,000, 1 million, and even 5 million per coin. I think Bitcoin will still be too volatile to use as a true unit of account until it breaches eight figures in today's dollars or once it absorbs 30% of the world's wealth. For this reason, I believe the countries who will adopt 
Bitcoin will be forced to adopt the U.S. dollar specifically as a unit of account. Countries adopting a Bitcoin standard will be a Trojan horse for continued global dollar dominance. Put aside your opinions on whether stable coins or, or shit coins for just a second. With recent developments such as Tarot bringing stable coins to the Lightning Network, imagine the possibility of moving stable coins around the world instantly and for nearly zero fees. The Federal Reserve of Cleveland seems to be paying close attention to these developments as they recently published a paper titled The Lightning Network Turning Bitcoin into Money. Zooming out, we can see that since March 2020, the stablecoin supply has grown from under $5 billion to over $150 billion. What I find most interesting is not the rate of growth of stablecoins, but which stablecoins are growing the fastest. After the recent Terra Luna debacle, capital fled from what's perceived to be more risky stablecoins like Tether to more safe ones like USDC. This is because USDC is 100% backed by cash and short-term debt. BlackRock is the world's largest asset manager and recently headlined a $440 million fundraising round by investing in Circle. But it wasn't just a funding round. BlackRock is going to be acting as the primary asset manager for USDC and their treasury reserves, which is now nearly $50 billion. The aforementioned Tether appears to be following in the footsteps of USDC. Tether has long been criticized for its opaqueness and the fact that it's backed by risky commercial paper. Tether has been viewed as the unregulated offshore U.S. dollar stablecoin. That being said, Tether sold their riskier commercial paper for more pristine U.S. government debt. They also agreed to undergo a full audit to improve transparency. If Tether is true to their word and continues to back USDT with U.S. government debt, we could see a scenario in the near future where 80% of the total stablecoin market is backed by U.S. government debt. Another stablecoin issuer, MakerDAO, also capitulated this week buying 500 million government bonds for its treasury. It was crucial that the U.S. dollar was the main denomination for Bitcoin during the first 13 years of its life, during which 85% of the Bitcoin supply has been released. Network effects are hard to change, and the U.S. dollar stands to benefit most from the proliferation of the overall crypto market. This Bretton Woods 3 framework correctly describes the issue facing the United States. The country needs to find someone to buy their debt. Many dollar doomsayers assume the Fed will have to monetize a lot of the debt. Others say that increased regulations are the way for the U.S. commercial banking system, which was regulated to hold more treasuries in the 2013 to 2014 era, as countries like Russia and China began divesting and slowing their purchases. However, what if proliferating stablecoin market backed by government debt can help soak up that lost demand for U.S. treasuries, which I think is a brilliant point that he makes here. Is this how the U.S. finds a solution to the unwinding petrodollar system? Interestingly, the U.S. needs to find a solution to its debt problems and fast. Nations around the world are racing to escape the dollar-centric petrodollar system that the U.S. for decades has been able to weaponize to entrench its hegemony. The BRICS nations have announced their intentions to create a new reserve currency, and there are a host of other countries such as Saudi Arabia, Iran, Turkey, and Argentina that are applying to become part of this BRICS partnership. To make matters worse, the United States has $9 trillion of debt that matures in the next 24 months. Who is now going to buy all that debt? The U.S. is once again backed into a corner like it was in the 1970s. How does the country protect this nearly 100-year hegemony as the global reserve currency issuer and 250-year hegemony as the globe's dominant empire. This is where the thesis becomes a lot more speculative. Why is the Fed continuing to aggressively raise interest rates, bankrupting its supposed allies like Europe and Japan while seemingly sending the world into a global depression? To fight inflation is what we're told. Let's explore an alternative, possible reason why the Fed could be raising rates so aggressively. What options does the U.S. have to defend its hegemony? In a world currently under a hot war, would it seem so far-fetched to speculate that we could be entering an economic cold war, a war of central banks, if you will? Have we forgotten about the weapons of mass destruction? Have we forgotten what we did to Libya and Iraq for attempting to route around the petrodollar system and stop using the U.S. dollar in the early 2000s? Until six months ago, 
my base case was that the Fed and central banks around the globe would act in unison, pinning interest rates low and use the financial repression sandwich to inflate away globes, the globe's enormous and unsustainable 400% debt to GDP ratio. I expected them to follow the economic blueprints laid out by two economic white papers. The first one published by the IMF in 2011 titled The Liquidation of Government Debt. And then the second paper published by BlackRock in 2019 titled Dealing with the Next Downturn. I also expected all the central banks to work in tandem to move toward implementing central bank digital currencies and working together to implement the Great Reset. However, when the data changes, I change my opinions. Since the creepingly coordinated policies from governments and central banks around the world in early 2020, I think some countries are not so aligned as they once were. Until late 2021, I held a strong view that it was mathematically impossible for the U.S. to raise rates like Paul Volcker did in the 1970s at this stage of the long-term cycle without crashing the global debt market. But what if the Fed wants to crash the global debt markets? What if the U.S. recognizes that a strengthening dollar causes more pain for its global competitors than for themselves? What if the U.S. recognizes that they would be the last domino left standing in a cascade of sovereign defaults? Would collapsing the global debt markets lead to hyperdollarization? Is this the only economic wild card the U.S. has up its sleeve to prolong its reign as the dominant global hegemon? While everyone is waiting for the Fed pivot, I think the most important pivot has already happened, the Dalio pivot. As a Ray Dalio disciple, I've built my entire macroeconomic framework on the idea that cash is trash. I believe that mantra still holds true for anyone using any other fiat currency, but has Dalio stumbled upon some new information about the US dollar that has changed his mind? Dahlia wrote a phenomenal book, The Changing World Order, Why Nations Succeed or Fail, that details how wars occur when global empires clash. Has he concluded that the United States could be about to weaponize the dollar, making it not so trashy? Has he concluded that the U.S. isn't going to willingly allow China to be the world's next rising empire, like he once proclaimed? Would the U.S. aggressively raising rates lead to a capital flight to the U.S., a country that has comparatively healthier banking system than its competitors in China, Japan, and Europe? Do we have any evidence for this outlandish left-field hypothetical scenario? Let's also not forget, this is not just a race with the United States versus China. The second most used foreign currency in the world, the euro, probably wouldn't mind gaining power from a declining U.S. empire. We have to ask the question, why is Jerome Powell refusing to align monetary policies with one of our closest allies in Europe? In this illuminating 2021 webinar at the Green Swan Central Banking Conference, Powell blatantly refused to go along with the green central banking policies that were discussed. This visibly infuriated Christine Lagarde, head of the European Central Bank, who was also part of the event. Some of the quotes from Powell in that interview are illuminating. Is this a sign the U.S. is no longer a fan of the Great Reset ideologies coming out of Europe? Why is the Fed also ignoring the United Nations, begging them to lower rates? We can also speculate about what Powell's intentions may be all day, but I prefer to look at data. Since Powell's initial heated debate with Lagarde and the Fed's subsequent rate increases on the reverse repo days after the dollar has decimated the euro. In April 2022, Powell was dragged into another debate with Lagarde, led by the head of the IMF. Powell reaffirmed his stance on climate change and central banking. The plot thickens when we consider the implications of the LIBOR and SOFR interest rate transition that occurred at the beginning of 2022. Will this interest rate change enable the Fed to hike interest rates and insulate the banking system from the contagion that will ensue from a wave of global debt defaults in the wider euro-dollar market? I do think it's interesting that by some metrics, the U.S. banking system is showing comparatively fewer sides of stress than in Europe or the rest of the world, validating the thesis that SOFR is insulating the U.S. to a degree. <clears throat> Whether the U.S. is at war with other central banks or not doesn't change the fact that the country needs a new neutral reserve asset to back the dollar. Creating a global deflationary bust and weaponizing the dollar is only a short-term play. Scooping up assets on the cheap 
and weaponizing the dollar will only force dollarization in the short term. The BRICS nations and others that are disillusioned with the SWIFT-centered financial system will continue to de-dollarize and try to create an alternative to the dollar. The global reserve currency has been informally backed by the U.S. Treasury note for the past 50 years, since Nixon closed the gold window in 1971. In times of risk, people run to the reserve asset as a way to get a hold of dollars. For the past 50 years, when equities sell off, investors fled to the safety of bonds, which would appreciate in risk-off environments. This dynamic built the foundation of the infamous 60-40 portfolio until this trade ultimately broke in March 2020 when the Treasury market became illiquid. As we transition into the Bretton Woods III era, the Triffin Dilemma is finally becoming untenable. The U.S. needs to find something to back the dollar with. I find it unlikely that they will back the dollar with gold. This would be playing into the hands of Russia and China, who have far larger gold reserves. This leaves the U.S. with their backs against a wall. Faith is being lost in the dollar, and they would certainly want to retain their global reserve currency status. The last time the U.S. was in a similarly vulnerable position was in the 1970s with high inflation. It looked like the dollar would fail until the U.S. effectively pegged the dollar to oil through the petrodollar agreement with the Saudis in 1973. The country is faced with a similar conundrum today, but with a different set of variables. They no longer have the option of backing the dollar with oil or gold. Bitcoin can stabilize the dollar and even prolong its global reserve currency status for much longer than many people expect. Most importantly, Bitcoin gives the U.S. the one thing it needs for the 21st century monetary wars, trust. Countries may trust a gold-backed petro-yubel yuan more than a dollar backed by worthless paper, However, a Bitcoin-backed dollar is far more trustworthy than a gold-backed petro-ruble-yuan. As mentioned earlier, the monetization of Bitcoin not only helps the U.S. economically, but also hurts, directly hurts our monetary competitors, China, and to a lesser degree Europe, our supposed ally. Will the U.S. realize that backing the dollar with energy directly hurts China and Europe? China and Europe are both facing significant energy-related headwinds and have both infamously banned Bitcoin's proof-of-work mining. I made the case that the energy crisis in China was the real reason China banned Bitcoin mining in 2021. Today, as we transition into the digital age, I believe a fundamental shift is coming. For thousands of years, money has been backed by trust in gold and protected by ships. However, in this millennium, Money will now be backed by encryption and math and protected by chips. If you will allow me to once again engage in some speculation, I believe the U.S. understands this reality and is preparing for a deglobalized world in many different ways. The U.S. appears to be the Western nation taking the friendliest approach to Bitcoin. We have senators all across the U.S. tripping over themselves to make their states Bitcoin hubs by enacting friendly regulation <laughs> for mining. The great hash migration of 2021 has seen the lion's share of the Chinese hash being transferred to the U.S., which now houses over 35% of the world's hash rate. Recent sanctions on Russian miners could only further accelerate this hash migration. Apart from some noise in New York and the delayed spot ETF decision, the U.S. looks as though it's embracing Bitcoin. In this video, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen talks about Satoshi Nakamoto's innovation. The SEC Chair Gary Gensler continually differentiates Bitcoin from crypto and has also praised Satoshi Nakamoto's invention. ExxonMobil is the largest oil company in the U.S. and announced it was using Bitcoin mining to offset its carbon emissions. Then there's the question, why has Michael Saylor been allowed to wage a speculative attack on the dollar to buy Bitcoin? Why is the Fed releasing tools highlighting how to price eggs and other goods in Bitcoin terms? If the U.S. was so opposed to banning Bitcoin, why has it, all of this been allowed in this country? We're transitioning from an oil-backed dollar to a Bitcoin-backed dollar reserve asset. Crypto euro dollars, a.k.a. stablecoins backed by U.S. debt, will provide the bridge between the existing energy-backed dollar system and the new energy-backed Bitcoin dollar system. I find it awfully poetic that the country founded on the ideology of freedom and self-sovereignty appears to be positioning itself 
to be the one that most takes advantage of this technological innovation. The Bitcoin-backed dollar is the only alternative to a rising Chinese threat positioning for the global reserve currency. Yes, the United States has committed many atrocities. I'd argue that at times they've been guilty of abusing their power as the global hegemon. However, in a world that's being rapidly consumed by ramp rampant totalitarianism, what happens if the mighty U.S. experiment fails? What happens to our civilization if we allow a social credit scoring Chinese empire to rise and its export and export its CBDC-backed digital panopticon to the world? I was once one of these people cheering for the demise of the U.S. empire, but I now fear the survival of our very civilization is dependent upon the survival of the country that was originally founded on the principles of life, liberty, and property. Zooming out, I stand by my original thesis that we are now in a new monetary order by the end of the decade. However, the events of the previous months have certainly accelerated that already rapid 2030 timeline. I also stand by my original thesis from the 2021 article surrounding how Bitcoin's adoption curve unfolds because of how broken the current monetary regime is. <clears throat> I believe 2020 was the monetary inflection point that will be the catalyst that takes Bitcoin from 3.9% global adoption to 90% adoption this decade. This is what crossing the chasm entails for all transformative technologies that reach mainstream penetration. There will, however, be many hopeful moments along the way, like there was in the German Weimar hyperinflationary event of the 1920s. There will be dips and spikes in inflation like there was in the 1940s during the U.S. government deleveraging. Global deglobalization will be the perfect scapegoat for what was always going to be a decade of government debt deleveraging. The monetary contractions and spasms are becoming more frequent and more violent with each drawdown we encounter. I believe the majority of fiat currencies are in the 1917 stages of the Weimar hyperinflation. This article is very centered on nation-state adoption of Bitcoin, but don't lose sight of what's truly unfolding here. Bitcoin is a Trojan horse for freedom and self-sovereignty in the digital age. Interestingly, I also feel that hyperdollarization will accelerate this peaceful revolution. Hyperinflation in the event that causes people to do the work and learn about money. Once many of these power-hungry dictators are forced to dollarize and no longer have the control of their local money printer, they may be more incentivized to take a bet on something like Bitcoin. Some may even do it out of spite, not wanting to have their monetary policy dictated to them by the U.S. Money is the primary tool used by states to exercise their autocratic authoritarian powers. Bitcoin is the technological innovation that will dissolve the nation state and fracture the power the state has by removing its monopoly on the money supply. In the same way the printing press fractured the power of the dynamic duo that was the church and state, Bitcoin will separate money from state for the first time in 5,000 plus years of monetary history. So to answer the dollar doomsayers, is the dollar going to die? Yes. But what will we see in the interim? De-dollarization? Maybe on the margins. But I believe we will see hyper-dollarization followed by hyper-Bitcoinization. So kind of a long piece, but very, very interesting. And I do recommend, uh, there's a lot of charts and stuff in here that I didn't go through and other uh, citations. So uh, if you get a chance, definitely uh, click the link in the show notes and read through it for, it, for yourself. Um, lastly, uh, just to let you know, my monthly portfolio update is out on Substack. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes, won't go into it, other than to say, not much change from last month, still holding a lot of cash, uh, still um, nervous about stocks, um, bonds might do well next year, gold and Bitcoin seem to be sniffing something out and have rallied a little bit off of their lows, and so I'm still very interested in those. Uh, I'll be taking a break for the holidays, um, probably for the next couple weeks, so... I will see you in the new year. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. And uh, I hope all goes well with you and yours. And uh, that we have a, a really good year next year. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please like and leave a comment. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Uh, again, you can follow me on Substack at bitcoinfortress.substack.com. 
And you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Nick Reichert. And I will talk to you all in the new year. Bye-bye.